All right, our program today has to do with truth. And the truth is that about quarter to 10, Renee received a text that our presenter had a, a family emergency and couldn't be here. So fortunately for us, Reverend Ralph was able to pull something from his office that he's going to present, and I will let him introduce that himself. Thank you so much for filling in. We do what we have to do. And I have a computer here in the office. And when Renee said our speaker uh, had an emergency, I, and you know, sometimes we do, ha we, we do have folders up here that have uh, sermons that were written and we could draw from but we don't have that uh, today. So I said, well, I can draw one from my uh, uh, computer memory upstairs. So I've, I have one here that is not my sermon, but it's one that I heard delivered by my mentor, Reverend Patrick Thomas Aquinas O'Neill. He's a ma master of writing and delivering uh, reflections. And this one is on the great Unitarian uh, thinker, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Many of us here today uh, can find uh, quotes from Emerson uh, in our, uh, cal on our calendars or uh, being quoted by uh, popular thinkers. The, uh, the bard who I get a weekly uh, letter uh, from, uh, Garrison Keeler, uh, always likes to quote Emerson. And so it's nice to kind of reflect on these giants of Unitarianism, and that's what I'm going to reflect and share with you today. This morning I want to tell you, uh, uh, talk to you about one of the true giants of American Unitarian thought, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the Bard of Concord. Ralph was not what he preferred to be called. He preferred Waldo. So although I'm a Ralph, and I always thought, oh, there's a Ralph, he liked Waldo. It would be difficult indeed to overstate the importance of Emerson's place in the history of Unitarianism. In a religious uh, association distinguished by so many prominent leaders, thinkers, and reformers in American history, Emerson's legacy to Unitarian Universalism is unparalleled. Even today, 200 years after his birth, Emerson is the most widely recognized and revered figure in our movement and continues to attract many to our congregations. Through his career as a minister, a lecturer, 
and writer, reformer, a poet, and a public citizen, Emerson was instrumental in shaping both American culture and Unitarian Universalist theology. One biographer, Frank Schulman, says of Emerson that, quote, he made everyone feel taller. A washerwoman who always attended his lectures at Fenuel Hall was asked by a reporter if she understood Mr. Ele Mr. Emerson's elegant prose. Not a word, she replied. But I love to see him standing up there thinking everyone else is as good as he is. He makes us feel at home with greatness, does Mr. Emerson. Emerson's moment as the dominant Unitarian thinker of his day arrived as he rose to deliver what came to be known as the Divinity School Address in 1838. In this refulgent summer, it begins, it has been a luxury to draw the breath of life. The grass grows, the buds burst, the meadow is spotted with fire and gold in the tint of flowers. With these lovely words, flowing in the sometimes purple prose of 19th century New England, one of the undisputed masters of the language, Ralph Waldo Emerson, began one of the most important sermons in the history of American Unitarianism. These words were delivered in a tiny chapel of Divinity Hall at Harvard College in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The chapel seated scarcely more than three score of people. And on that particular day, Sunday afternoon, July 15, 1838, the chapel was filled with overflowing. The occasion was the commencement ceremony for the graduating class of Harvard Divinity School. And besides the six graduating uh, members of the class, all ministers, there was present that day a virtual who's who of American Unitarianism in New England. The entire faculty of the Divinity School was there. Of course, all of them were Unitarians. There was Henry Ware Jr. who held the chair in New Testament studies. There was Andrews Norton, Dexter Professor Emeritus of Sacred Literature at Harvard, who had a central character in the Unitarian Revolution in the Divinity School in the 1820s. There was the Reverend Theodore Parker of Boston, only two years out of Harvard himself and not yet became the most famous Unitarian preacher in the country. There was Elizabeth Peabody of Concord, she was one of the most prominent educators in New England, an early leader, uh, leader in the kindergarten movement. She was also a writer and a publisher of the Dial magazine, the voice of the transcendentalist movement. She was a family friend of Emerson uh, and a personal secretary for many years of none other than William Ellery Channing. That Channing, is considered the father of American Unitarianism. And then there was Edward Everett Hale and his sister, Sarah of Worcester, 
Worcester, uh, arrived late in the ceremony and had to take chairs out in the hallway of the chapel. Mr. Hale would later write that he was appalled by what Emerson said that day. As we sit here in a Unitarian Universalist church in Brooklyn 170, well, this is where uh, Patrick was when he was giving this in the uh, a church in Brooklyn, New York. It may be a bit difficult for us to appreciate fully what that kind of occasion meant. In general, to the budding Unitarian movement of the day, and what this particular message would eventually signal and symbolize for the development of our liberal brand of religion. In fact, our Unitarian congregations uh, would want each congregation and the ministers at the time uh, to not be too conservative, to have approved uh, or to approve of Emerson's words that day. Today, uh, we still practice one of the old school Channing Christian, uh, uh, Christian Unitarian churches, and Emerson was in the beginning of his uh, career an evangelist for transcendentalism, a school of religious thought would have, that would eventually revolutionize the entire Unitarian movement. Today, of course, there are over 1,100 Unitarian Universalist congregations in North America and upwards of over 200,000 members. There are more than 1,200 ordained Unitarian Universalist ministers today and some 500 ministry students in training. When he gave this, there were 500. I think there might only 300 today. But as that small group of people gathered in that little chapel there at Harvard uh, in 1838, the American Unitarian Association was only 13 years old. There were at the time fewer than 200 Unitarian ministers in the entire country. Virtually all of them within a day's horse ride from Harvard Divinity School, which was then the only Unitarian seminary in America. So the occasion of six men graduating and entering their ministerial careers was a vitally important event. The graduating members of Divinity School in 1838 had asked Waldo Emerson of Concord to deliver the address to the graduates. He was a natural choice, the kind of speaker that any graduating class loves to pick. Emerson was already widely known as a brilliant and mesmerizing speaker, colorful in language, gifted in the use of imagery and metaphor. But even more interesting to the graduating class, Emerson was known to be something of a theological radical, even by Unitarian standards. They expected that he would have something provocative and stirring to say to the assembled high company. Yet few could have guessed that Emerson's words that day would literally drive a wedge into the fledgling Unitarian movement and change unalterably the course of Unitarianism forever after. Ralph Waldo Emerson himself had graduated from Harvard College in 1821 and from the Divinity School in 1826. He had accepted a call to the pulpit of the Second Church 
in Boston in 1826. Eighteen twenty-nine. I get that confused because in two thousand in two thousand, I went and uh, interviewed for a position at that church <laughs> in Boston. Of course, I didn't get it, but it was fun walking through and thinking that here's where Emerson uh, and a lot of the other greats uh, at one time uh, stood. A little personal reflection connecting. And although his lecturing career was blossoming, the truth is Emerson was greatly torn over his decision to move away from his calling of ministry. His father, his grandfather, and his wife's father were all ministers. And from the beginning, Emerson seemed to have a love-hate affair with being a minister. One of his friends remarked that Emerson loved the idea of ministry while he hated having to practice it in real life. It was the pastoral demands of ministry and the expectations of endless parish calling typical of Emerson's day that eventually drove him out of ministry. He became restive and critical of his profession even before he resigned from Second Church he felt inauthentic and hypocritical uh, distributing communion in his church, knowing that its symbolism meant something much more to his people than he himself could believe. He had already moved beyond the kind of uh, ritual uh, that was practiced in the Unitarian churches that day, and that was uh, taking communion. Uh, and some of the other rituals that were practiced. It was easier for Emerson to blame the profession and the institutional church for shortcomings than it was for him to accept his own inability to be happy in the ministry. In truth, what Emerson loved most about ministry was preaching, and he was an extremely harsh critic of colleagues who were not as gifted as he was in the pulpit. He wrote in his journal, the next best thing to good preaching is bad preaching. I have even more thoughts enduring it than at other times. Returning from one particular poor pulpit performance by the pastor at First Parish in Concord one Sunday, he wrote in his journal the now famous line, I like the silent church before the service begins more than I like any preaching. <laughs> it is hardly surprising then that Emerson would have some strong things to say to the graduating ministers about the kind of preaching then prevalent in the Unitarian pulpits of New England. He told the graduates that day that, quote, historical Christianity destroys the power of preaching. That tradition characterizes the preaching of this country, that it comes out of books and not out of the soul, and that it aims at what is usual and not at what is necessary and eternal. Powerful words. 
It was the doctrinal gauntlet that Emerson threw down in the next section of his address that most disturbed those who were in attendance. Up to this point in the development of American Unitarianism, the movement had been absolutely identified strictly with the confines of traditional Christianity. With the exception of the doctrine of the Trinity, which most New England Unitarians were only tangentially vague about, like most other Christians, incidentally, who really don't begin to understand this mysterious doctrine either, the Unitarians of the day were hardly very radical theologically. Jesus Christ was accepted in most Unitarian churches as the one true Son of God, the divinely appointed Savior of man mankind, humankind, and while the Unitarians certainly valued reasoned, reasoned uh, approach to interpreting the scriptures, the older generation of Unitarians did accept the miracle stories of the New Testament as a sign of Jesus' divinity. But by 1838, a newer, well-educated, and more theologically adventuresome generation of Unitarians was ready to challenge them, the miracle stories of the New Testament as being unprovable and unnecessary interpretations of Jesus' life. Furthermore, this new generation of Unitarians did not accept Jesus as necessarily divine, but rather as a prophet, uh, a teacher, a model of moral perfection, perhaps the greatest model of selfless love in history, but no more than a model. And moreover, they claimed that God's revelation of moral principle to humanity did not end with the Bible. It continued in the life of every living creature, in the mind of every thinking person, in the sentiments and confidence of every human living soul. If those uh, thoughts do not sound to us to be very radical propositions, that Jesus is but one model of moral perfection, that revelation did not end with the Bible and that the natural human conscious is capable, capable of moral decision unaided by divine rule, be assured they were radical back then in 1838. And every one of these points was in fact hammered home by Emerson in the Divinity School Address. Most of the young divinity students who heard him that day were enthralled, and most of the faculty and parish ministers present correctly understood that Emerson was giving eloquent voice to a new and powerful doctrine that would take American Unitarianism beyond the boundaries of mere liberal Christianity. Unitarianism, as Emerson enunciated that day, called for a religious vision and a religious understanding that included more than just a Christian view. Among those present in that elite and sophisticated Cambridge audience that day were a number who eventually le would lead the transcendentalist movement of the 1840s. And that movement forever implanted a trans-Christian, universalist, non-creedal, free-thinking tenor to Unitarianism. In the year following the Divinity School Address, a storm of controversy broke between the old line Christian Unitarians of Channing's generation and the New Age Unitarians who looked to Emerson and Theodore Parker as their poets and their theological champions. 
The transcendentalist circle of Emerson, Parker, Fuller, and others found truth and wisdom in other traditions beside Christianity and claimed place for them in our Unitarian reverence. For the first time, our theology reached out to embrace the concept of religious truth found in many places, in many cultures, in many styles. And last week, some of you recall that I brought that message from my attending the Parliament of World's Religions. Uh, the many religions that were presented there were being embraced by these early Unitarians. Unitarian theology began to expand from a strict Christian base to a more eclectic and inclusive theology to a rich climate of scholarly Boston in the 1830s. With the flowering of new biblical linguistic analysis of the day, the opening up of the Eastern mystical traditions and language, think Buddhism, the poetry of the Upanishads, the meditation disciplines of Hinduism, the publishing of Quranic and Tibetan texts were already in practice or being read in America. It shocked orthodoxy when Unitarians first did this. It still shocks some that we should look anywhere beyond the boundaries of Judeo-Christian tradition and scripture for inspiration and truth. Historically, Unitarianism did not see itself as rejecting Christian tradition by honoring other theologies. It saw itself as trans-Christian tradition including a reverence for our Christian roots, and then reaching beyond that to be nurtured and enlightened by the truths of other great faiths as well. Interestingly enough, the Divinity School Address marks the end of Emerson's active personal involvement in the Unitarian movement itself. Through his, though his influence would be felt in Unitarian churches for decades. But the Divinity School Address itself seemed to resolve something for Emerson, and his vocational crisis was finally decided. He gave up preaching formally, and eventually even resigned his membership in the first parish in Concord, probably because he just couldn't stand the sermons anymore. Although his wife and children remained faithful Unitarians for their lifetimes, and he continued to pay his church pledge even after he resigned. When he was in the final years of his life, he did attend uh, church again. He died in Concord in 1882. Eventually, the transcendentalist movement, with its mystic and institutional inst intuitional elements, was itself later replaced in, uni in the Unitarian outlook by an ascendance of a scientific and critical attitude. But by challenging the Christian orthodoxy of its day, the transcendentalist movement and its great prime mover, Ralph Waldo Emerson, made this forever after the church of the open mind and the open heart. As a student, a divinity student in preaching class, a friend of mine memorized much of the divinity school address for recital in class. However, he's misspoke Emerson's opening sentence in this interesting Freudian way. He said, in this refulgent religion, it has been a luxury to draw the breath of life. 
May ours ever be a religion that is indeed refulgent. The word means blooming, open, full of life. This is the prayer that Ralph Waldo Emerson would have prayed with gusto. That's the end. The concept that Emerson liked to uh, use was the oversoul. And that meant that there is a grand spectrum of sacredness that covers and is embedded in all of us and is part of us and we are part of it. So that when we go out in nature, it is not just something that is objective out there, but it's also our inner self that is connecting with that. That's why many uh, Unitarians and Universalists uh, feel so uh, close to the natural world. And when we relate to that natural world, uh, we we find that it reveals to us something more than just a, uh, an object, a natural object, that it has a more than meaning for many uh, who want to be part of this overarching uh, sense of mystery, wonder, and enchantment. All right, thank you.